So what did your mom or dad do when you disobeyed? Think back to when you were a kid, when you did something you weren't supposed to do or when you failed to do the thing that you were supposed to do, how did mom and dad respond? Think of this, come to mind? If you're watching online, go ahead and drop something in the comments. Did your dad scream? Did your mom put you in timeout? Maybe you're a little too old for that generation of timeouts. Maybe you're like me. Your mom made you once go pick a switch from a tree. What did your parents do when you got in trouble? What happened? Were you grounded from something that you loved? Was your hand slapped? What happened in your house when you disobeyed? Now, my poor mother, she tried everything. I've told you before how she was like up to here and beyond with me and my two brothers. The only thing that really, really worked in disciplining me and my brothers was my dad. We love our dad, but when we were young, man, we feared him as well, more than anything else. And if we were really bad, the only thing mom had to say was, wait until your, yeah, your father gets home. And we immediately, for the most part, straightened out. Although one time we had my mother so worked up that she started to grab things and like put them in the family station wagon. And I asked her, mom, what are you doing? And she said, tell your father that his sons finally drove me away. (laughs) And then she grabbed my younger brother and I said, mom, why are you taking him? And she said, because he's the good one. That's true. And then she put him in the car and she drove away. And I remember looking at my older brother and said, we're dead. We are absolutely dead. And not five minutes later, she timed it perfectly. Not five minutes later, my dad pulls in from work. And the first question he asks is, "Uh, where's your mom? That's a hard one to explain. So fast forward to the ending. We were grounded and she was back by dinner. Today, we're continuing a teaching series that we've been in for the last few weeks called Me and My House, where we're looking at family life with an emphasis on parenting through the lens of faith. And today, we're going to talk about something that every family wrestles with, whether you're a parent, a grandparent, a beloved aunt or uncle, or maybe you're an educator managing a classroom. One thing we all deal with is disobedience. Now, what's interesting about me giving this sermon right now is that my daughter, my 16-year-old daughter, she's actually upstairs in the video room controlling all the slides behind me today. She's up there um, having a good time. Oh, good. She's saying hi. That's... <laughs> now, Ava, I'll, I'll talk directly to you since you've said hi. Um, we're talking disobedience today, so if, if you mess up my slides, you're in trouble, okay? I'll just say that. All right. <laughs> she gets that from her mother. All right, so here's what I want to say. Disobedience in kids is a big deal. Disobedience in kids is a big deal. Uh, When your child in your care isn't doing what they're supposed to do, or even worse, when they do something you explicitly told them not to do, it sends off all kinds of alarm bells. It fills us with all kinds of emotions. Now, have you ever stopped to wonder why that is? Have you ever stopped to wonder why their disobedience is such a big deal to us? Why it makes us so emotional, so angry, so frustrated, or so sad? Well, I I have an answer. I have an idea. I think the reason disobedience is such a big deal in the heart of parents is because their disobedience is a threat to us. 
Now, you might think that that's a strong word, but, but I don't. I think it's an accurate word. The disobedience of children, young children, older children, children in general, the disobedience of children is a threat to those who are in charge. Specifically, it threatens two things in us. It threatens our plans for them, and boy, do we have plans for them. Our plans is for them to be healthy and functional and moderately successful adults. And when they're laying on the ground in HEB, throwing a fit because they don't get to ride in the cart, or when they're 17 and they're texting you saying, I'm at Kelly's house, but the app that you installed on their phone says that they're at Brandon's house, all of your plans for them to be a successful adult in the future seem to be threatened. It's also a big deal because it threatens our ego as parents. We want to be good parents. We want to be the ones that have control. We don't want to fail at parenting. And so if your middle schooler posts something wildly inappropriate on TikTok that a friend from work discovers and then shares with you, you can't help but think, what kind of parent am I? What does this say about me? It threatens our ego. Now, I would say that the biggest threat that disobedience of children uh, is to parents it is not so much about our plans or our ego, but the biggest threat, and this is actually what I would say the scriptures lead us to, the biggest threat is to our relationships. Disobedience is a big deal, ultimately, bottom line, because it damages relationships. So think for a second about the very first sin, Garden of Eden. Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Adam and Eve think that they can do a better job than God the Father, and so they eat the fruit they're not supposed to eat. And what's the fallout? The fallout of that disobedience, you could say, is almost purely a relational one. You have two relationships that are fractured. The relationship between humanity and its maker is fractured, and then humanity's relationship with creation, including one another, is fractured. That's the fallout. The problem of the first act of disobedience is that it breaks relationship. Think about the Ten Commandments, the most famous family rules that have ever been given. They're about relationships. Here's how they start. This is the preamble, so to speak, of the Ten Commandments. Here's why God is giving them. Exodus chapter 20, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God is saying, look, because I'm your God, I rescued you out of slavery. You are mine. We are a family, so to speak. And because I'm your God and you are mine, because we're in relationship now, I'm going to give you these things that we call the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are not just rules. They're about protecting and respecting what? A relationship. They're about protecting and respecting a relationship. It's all about relationship. And you know this is true. This is why when your kids are a bit older and they break the rules, the most powerful thing that you can say to them is not that they're in trouble, but that you are what? Disappointed. You all know the answer to this. And the reason that's powerful is because you're essentially saying this. Your choice has an effect on our what? Our relationship. Your choice has an effect on our relationship, and that cuts deeper, doesn't it? The greatest threat that disobedience brings is not to, not to your plans or not to your ego, though it does hit those things, it's to the relationship. 
When your child disobeys, young kid, older kid, it creates animosity between you and them, and it creates animosity between them and whoever is on the receiving end of their bad behavior, which oftentimes, if you're a parent, is you, or it could be the, the sibling who gets spat on or the teacher who got talked back to. From God's perspective, relationships are everything, and disobedience is a big deal because it threatens, it harms, it hinders what? Relationships. Good. You're, you're tracking with me. Which means if disobedience isn't dealt with, if disobedience isn't corrected, the, the greatest tragedy isn't that your son or daughter grows up to be less successful as the world measures success. No, the real tragedy is that the effect of their broken behavior would, would impact negatively all the other relationships around them. If disobedience isn't dealt with, the real tragedy is that they grow up sideways with the ones who love them the most, their family. They grow up disconnected with the one who made them, their God. And then they have a dysfunctional relationship with all the other healthy people around them who don't respect them or trust them. That would truly be tragic. You know, your, your son could grow up to be Jeffrey Bezos. Your daughter could grow up to be Beyonce. Real successful. But if all their relationships are garbage, what have they got? Not much. Now, when, when we feel the threat of disobedience as parents, we, we tend to have uh, an instant and drastic response. The typical response to diso uh, disobedience is this, rules and retribution. The stakes are high. We want this kid to turn out well. Relationships matter, and it frustrates the relationship. And so we see the disobedience as a threat, and we respond quickly. Our instinct is to lay out more rules and to throw out a punishment. We want them to feel pain for talking back, so we punish. We want them to know exactly what they should do next time, so we write a new rule. Sound familiar? It happens in my house. happened in your house growing up. And it's not bad, but, but, but there's limits to that. And here are the limits. Having rules and retribution as your primary approach only gets you so far. Because too many rules burdens a heart. And pain, which is what punishment is, pain is powerless to change the heart. Too many rules burdens the heart. Pain is powerless to change the heart. So, so, so too many rules creates futility. Now, your child may not be able to articulate that, but... Too many rules creates an attitude inside the heart that says, what's the point? I can't keep it all. I can never please. And inflicting pain, you know, taking things away, slapping the hand, however that works for you, at best simply teaches the child to avoid that pain. It's not heart obedience, which is what you actually want. What the inflicting of pain cannot do is create a desire in the heart to do something differently out of love. What pain cannot do is create a desire in the heart for better choices altogether. Obedience in a child that is created by adding rules and inflicting pain is burdensome and superficial. Now, you might say, Matt, but, but God has rules for us. And I've read the Bible. God ain't above punishing people. So are you trying to tell me that I need to be a more woke parent than God? No. 
Let's go down that rabbit trail, shall we? How many rules does God actually give us? I mean, if you look at the Ten Commandments, I mean, the number is in the title, ten. But even Jesus summarizes all the law, all the prophets, and he says, look, it really just comes down to two. Worship God and don't be a jerk. Those are the two rules that God has. It all comes down to this. There are two rules with tons of applications. But everything God's about is simply that. Love God and love others. Not many rules. And I would say to you that God does not punish us. Not at all. Not ever. He disciplines us. And that's very different. And you might think that I'm playing word games there, but but I'm not. Let me explain. We're going to go deep for a second, okay? Here's your $5 phrase for the day. Retributive justice. $5 phrase for the day. Use that at Jimmy John's later on when you're buying a sandwich. Retributive justice. What that means is the inflicting of pain on another that they deserve because of something bad that they've done. Retributive justice. Inflicting pain upon someone that they deserve because of something bad that they've done. Retributive justice is perfectly legitimate. Uh, This is why jails exist. Uh, This is why grandma used to pinch the little hairs in the back of your neck after you were acting a fool. Retributive justice. Wrongs need to get punished. But, But hear me on this. It's just one side of the justice coin. Not only do wrongs need to be punished, but right needs to be taught. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be instilled. And that's discipline. Punishment is about pain. Discipline is about instruction. Punishment is about, you can use the biblical word, wrath. And discipline is about leading someone towards what is right. It's about correction. And both of those things matter. They're both sides of the justice coin. A just parent will punish, but also will discipline. Now, now here's the thing. When it comes to your relationship, mankind's relationship with God, God punished, he poured out his righteous wrath for all sins, for all disobedience, for all time that's deserved by all people, including you and your kids. He poured all that wrath, all that punishment for all time onto one person, Jesus. Jesus was punished. Retribution was done to him. We don't say Jesus was disciplined for our sins, do we? No, we say he was punished for our sins. Retribution was done to him because if it were done to humanity, we wouldn't have survived. What that means, though, is that God the Father is now out of the business of punishing sin. He's out of the business of punishing sin this side of eternity because all sin has been punished in Jesus. All retributive justice has been given to God's own son, which means you never have to wonder, is God punishing me? Meaning, is he inflicting pain on me that I somehow deserve for the mistakes that I've made? The answer to that question is always no. Look to the cross. All punishment was on Christ. All of it, not on you. God doesn't work that way. 
Uh, Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took the punishment. Since, therefore, we have now been justified, we have been declared not guilty, just in the eyes of God, justice has been done by his blood, not yours, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? No punishment for mankind because of Jesus Christ. So what's the only thing left? The other side of the justice coin, what's left? Discipline. Does he punish us? No. Instead, he allows the ups and the downs of life to correct us and to teach us and to shape us, to form what is right in us and through us. Here's my big assertion for this week. If you're here and you are a a family of faith, if you're a a parent, a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle with influence over the lives of little people, if you are an educator with kids in your care, whatever it looks like for you, and you, you have faith in Jesus Christ who has taken all of your punishment and all that's left for you is loving fatherly discipline, I would say that the primary tactic in your leadership in the lives of little ones when it comes to disobedience should be discipline over punishment. Now, that's not to say that you never slap a hand. There's a place for hot stove parenting. Hot stove parenting is when you slap a hand, you make them hurt just a little bit because if you don't make it hurt, the other thing's going to hurt a lot more and they need to learn not to do that thing. There's a place for the infliction of appropriate pain so that they know how the world works and how to keep themselves safe and how to honor you and honor themselves. There's a time and place for that, but it's just one side of the coin and as people of faith, enlightened by how God deals with us, it's a small side at that. God's primary approach to us, his children, is discipline over pain and punishment, and I assert that it should be the same with you and your kids and me and mine. Just ask yourself this question. When I respond to disobedience, am I inflicting pain or am I trying to shape the heart? Am I slapping the hand or sending them to time out or grounding them from the thing? Or am I trying to shape the heart, correct, and focus actions in the right direction? Hebrews chapter 12. We read this earlier, but it's worth taking another look at. God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's goal is a changing of the heart. God's goal is a shaping of heart and action so that we share in his holiness, so that we are more like him. That's the aim, shaping heart and action, sharing in holiness. Now, you might be thinking, Matt, that is so much easier said than done. You have not met my children. I got two of my own. I know what it's like. 
And I know this is so much easier said than done, and, and we, we require mountains and mountains of grace and mercy every day as parents, grandparents, educators. We, we, we require so much grace because we're going to get this wrong so often. I, I get it. This is not easy. But this is about taking a, taking a chance to reflect on what's the aim of what I do in response to disobedience. What? Like I said, you may be asking, how does this look? Let me just say this. I'm going to bring you back to the beginning where I said that what's at stake in disobedience is relationships. And that what matters most to God in disobedience is relationships. So here's my assertion of what discipline should look like. Discipline should look like two things. I have two key words for you, restoration and return. Restoration and return. It is about empowering, and that's the key idea, empowering your child to restore the relationship that's been affected by their, dis by their, by their um, disobedience. And then return them to the right path that they are to be walking. It's about a restoration and a return. So, so what it looks like is this. When egregious behavior takes place, it's about helping the child in your care to see the following things. Three things you might want to take note of. You want them to be able to answer these three questions. Who was hurt? How can I repair it? And what does love look like in the future? Who was hurt? How can I repair it? And what does love look like? Answering the question, who was hurt, helps foster empathy and an awareness of your neighbor, which is what the scriptures are all about. How can, I, how can I repair it places a value on restoration, which is what God is all about. And what does love look like helps them focus on the future and loving the people around them rather than looking backward at the things that they've done wrong. And, and of course, you do this in age-appropriate ways, you know, when they're four years old, it looks like you saying, because as parents, you are usually the one who is the object of their disobedience, it looks like saying, I was hurt by what you just did. And what it takes to make it right is typically them apologizing to you. I would like you to apologize to me. And when they apologize, you say what? I forgive you. And it's about simple instruction about the next time they have an opportunity to make this poor choice. What I need you to do next time is this. Can you do that? Great. Now go eat some chicken nuggets. But when they're 15 years old, it looks a lot different. But it's the same principle. Can you understand who was hurt by the choice that you just made? No. <laughs> I need you to think about who was hurt by the choice that you just made. How can we make this right? If we, if we hurt this person by you telling that lie, how, how can we make that right? This is not the last time you're going to be in this situation. What does it look like to love them and yourselves and your God better next time? There's no way around a, 
a lengthy and slightly awkward conversation. It comes down to conversation every time, but it's the same thing. Who did you hurt? How can I repair it? And what does love look like? You lied to me. How can you make it right? You hurt them. Do you understand the impact? They're angry. Can we make a different choice next time? And now, when you walk through that process with a four-year-old or a 15-year-old, helping them to see how their choices affect others and helping them to make simple amends and helping them to consider what it looks like to love your neighbor next time, it can be painful in its own way for all involved. But it is not retribution. It is painful in a way that molds and shapes and changes. You know, one of the most humbling things you can learn as a parent is that your kids are just like you. In some of the good ways and in all of the wrong ways. Grandparents, have you had the experience yet of, of hearing your son or daughter complain about your grandchildren? And you get to say, well, now you know what it was like for me. Yeah, my, my folks enjoyed that quite a bit, too. But it's true. You know, your children are just like you. They're not merely just like you when you were a kid. And here's the thing I want you to grasp. They're just like you right now. They're struggling with the same things that you are struggling with today. They're struggling with selfishness, too. Materialism, too. Jealousy, too. Pride, too. You name it. They are sinners in need of the same grace, just like you are a sinner in need of grace. And if you let it, that truth can transform your leadership over the lives of little ones, especially when you deal with disappointment. Because when you understand that they're a dirty, rotten sinner just like you in the same way, to the same degree that you are a dirty, rotten sinner, it becomes really difficult to respond to their disobedience with self-righteous outrage. How dare you? Oh, I know how they dare. They're you. You instead, you approach them with empathy and compassion and some frustration, but empathy and compassion. Oh, my goodness, why? Me too, kid, okay, me too. What are we going to do? And then you give to those little sinners what God gives to this little sinner. Grace they don't deserve, forgiveness that they need and discipline that shapes the heart. Who'd you hurt? How can we make it right? What does love look like for next time? I'll close with this. If you, if you have little ones in your life, I want you to fast forward 20 years. Fast forward 20 years and, and someone asks your kid the same question that I asked you at the very beginning. What was discipline like in your house growing up? What, what do you think they'd say? What, what do you want them to say? If you have little ones in your life, you have influence over that answer right now. So what will you do about it? Now sure, no, no matter what, they're going to have stories to tell about how you acted when you were at your wit's end, no matter what. But what would you like the primary story to be? What would you like it to be? 
I'm going to leave you with this, this hope and this prayer that I have for you. May your children talk more about changed hearts than slapped hands. More about relationships saved than retribution given. More about discipline that shaped who they are today than punishment deserved for the wrongs in the past. May they tell stories about your dealings with their failures that sound strangely similar to how God deals with yours. Thanks, kid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this high and holy and difficult calling to influence younger people. Whether they're our own kids or our grandkids or our nieces and nephew, godchildren, whatever it is, we, we all have somebody that we're influencing. And it is hard, to say the least. Father, in the, in the face of discipline, help us, help us not merely to react with, with anger or emotion, but to think about what we'd like to accomplish. To let discipline with the aim of transforming hearts and shaping minds into the image and likeness of Christ, let, let that be the motivation and the aim of our efforts. And as we fail, when we fail, and boy, are we going to fail, may you whisper grace upon grace upon grace into our ear and remind us that though we get this wrong so often, we are still the ones you've chosen for this high and holy calling. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.